Good morning, family of grace. It's good to be with you guys. Have you guys ever had to take a risk on somebody? Um, Risk maybe saying something that was hard for them to hear, and you weren't really sure how it was going to go. I did so inadvertently one time. Um, I, was, I went to China with a guy named Andrew. He was one of my friends from college. I thought that we were friends and that we knew each other pretty well. Turns out we had a narrow working relationship that all of a sudden in a foreign country we found was not quite adequate enough to also let us figure out how to live as roommates together and how to, how to be friends and do everything else in, in life that involves living and working in the same vicinity for like 20 out of 24 hours a day. Um, At the end of our our time there, the people we were working with confided in us that they didn't think we were going to work out. They're like, you guys were so different, we thought this whole thing was going to just blow up and we'd have to send you guys home early. But one of the things was about Andrew, I'm going to pick on him instead of myself this morning, is uh, Andrew, Andrew struggled with some really deep insecurity. Um, The word adequacy was often on his tongue because he he felt inadequate all the time. It showed up in his music, in his life, in his studies, and then it showed up in life together, in his work and living with him. So as any good roommates do, we were fighting one day, and uh, Andrew's inadequacy was just bubbling to the top. And And I don't know if I just lost my cool on the guy or if it was a Holy Spirit prompted like, dude, you need to deal with this. Um, But I sort of unleashed the verbal cannon upon him and just told him that he needed to get over it, that, that what he was feeling was not from God and that in God, in Christ, he is like holy and complete and he needs to quit worrying and quit dealing with this, and I, I let him have it, and he left. Um, and that was hard, because I wasn't sure if I just ended our, our trip to China together. I had no idea what would happen. All I knew is he didn't say another word, and he fled the building. Have you guys had to sit in that tension before? And you're just wondering, like, what is going to happen. And until you know, it's like you can't enjoy anything. It might be like the best day in the world until that happened. And now the number one priority for you is finding out how are they going to respond to it. And in a way, that's a situation very similar to what the Apostle Paul found himself in with the church in Corinth. See, Paul had planted the church. He loved the people well. But while he was gone, some other apostles, so to speak, had come into the area. These guys, they looked great. They had a a thick stack of letters of recommendation, and they had all the credentials, and they didn't think much of Paul. They're like, oh, wait, Paul planted this church? Ah, you know, I'm not sure that he's actually an adequate apostle. And, And they began to derail the guy, and Paul was really concerned about it. Not because he cared that much about his own reputation, but because he knew something. He knew that if he had planted the church and then been found inadequate as an apostle, then he's also inadequate 
the gospel that he presented would also be inadequate. And if the good news about Jesus Christ was inadequate, then their salvation was inadequate. And the whole church kind of is going to collapse underneath this break in the foundation. And so Paul tries to shore things up. He heads back to Corinth. He makes this quick, painful visit, and it, it backfires. It goes really poorly. And our, our best guess of what happens is it seems that one person in particular within the church stood up and let Paul have it and challenged his authority as an apostle. And so Paul realized, I need to go. And so he went back to Ephesus and he wrote this painful, tear-filled letter where he, so to speak, unleashed a verbal cannon upon them. And he sends it at, with a, in the hands of a guy named Titus. And Titus crosses the sea to Ephesus, and, and then riots break out in Asia, and Paul has to move on. And everywhere he goes, he just encounters nothing but trouble and turmoil. Outside and inside, he's a mess because he doesn't know how they're going to take it. And so, finally, he sees Titus, and Titus is okay, and Paul's really glad about that. And then he gets the news from Titus, and we're going to uh, learn some more about that this morning. And so he sits down and he pens this letter uh, to the Corinthians. It's the second recorded one that we have. And one of the unique things about this letter is Paul understands that the people have, have kind of come back to Paul. Most of them, they've, he says, you, you've partially acknowledged me. Now I need you to acknowledge me fully. So chapters 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians is one long story that could be summarized really quick. This is the summary. This is Paul's travel plans. He begins in verse 8. Now, guys, we don't want you to be uninformed about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. So he tells them. He goes on and says, um, because I was confident you guys could boast about me in verse 15, I wanted to visit you first. I had planned to come to you and then use you as my launch pad for my mission to Macedonia and then head to Jerusalem. But I didn't end up doing that. In verse 23, he says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Paul knew if I show up, things are not going to go well. So I'm not coming. I'm thinking about you guys here. And then chapter 2, verse 12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and I found that the Lord had opened a door for me, great opportunity for ministry. I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and I went on to Macedonia. And at this point, Paul rabbit trails for about five chapters. 1,800 or so words later, he picks up the story in chapter 7, verse 5, and he says, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. And so as I was trying to look at chapter 7, which is really the, the pairing to chapter 1, um, both, you know, chapter 1 and 2 involves a lot of words of comfort and a lot of words of sorrow, and chapter 7 has a lot of words of comfort and a lot of words of sorrow, and then there's this great big section that we as a preaching team have been spending five weeks going through. And I just wondered, like, why does, why does Paul get into that? And I realized that what he's trying to do through this whole section is to defend his conduct, his, his motives, and his ministry. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about the conclusion of the matter, 
But just to give you a brief overview, Paul tells them in, in chapter 1, verse 12, he's like, look, guys, our conscience is clear. We behaved in the world and especially towards you with holiness and godly sincerity. Like, take a look. And, and here's the thing. You guys have partially understood us. You need to fully understand that you can boast about us. Like, until the Corinthian church acknowledges Paul in such a way that they are proud that Paul is their apostle, they have not yet arrived at where they need to be. And so he begins to tell them all about this ministry that God had given them. God appointed Paul and his companions to be ministers of a new covenant, a greater covenant than Moses had. Like, one that is so glorious, it puts the old covenant to shame. But the thing is, is that this amazing, glorious ministry is being carried around by Paul and his companions, and they're like clay jars, or as Drew put it, they're like cardboard boxes. They are really unimpressive packages, but inside that package is an immense treasure. And it's being made known by the fact that Paul looks like he's just dying all the time. <laughs> like his, his, he's being persecuted, he's being beaten. This guy outwardly does not look like much. But inwardly, this message of Jesus Christ, this new resurrection life that Paul has begun to experience and will ultimately one day fully experience, has taken hold and renews him inwardly day by day. And so he says, so we're beaten, but we're not crushed. You know, we are perplexed, but we're not abandoned by God. We don't know where we're going, but we know that wherever we go, God is leading us and spreading the fragrance of his son everywhere. And so we commend ourselves to everybody. We, we speak of Jesus Christ as Lord, and we present ourselves as everybody's servant for Jesus' sake. We are here not to lord it over you. We are here to serve you, and you guys need to get it. You need to get it. And so he says in chapter 5, like Corinthians, we're, we're commending ourselves to you. Chapter 5, verse 12, he says, look, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. We are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And that's what Paul's getting at. Like, you need to be proud of us. Be proud of the way that we have conducted ourselves. Be proud of our motives because you guys right now are being impressed by people who have done nothing but carry a big resume. And I need you guys to forego the resume and look at what we have done and the way that we have loved you. And so Trevor preached on this passage last week, but in chapter 6, Paul says, we have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. We have opened wide our hearts, like we have big hearts towards you. We have, we're not holding you guys back. You guys are holding yourselves back in your affections. You have grinchy hearts, two sizes too small, and you need to make them bigger so that we can come and, and have room inside of them. And so like, I speak like a father to your children, like love us back. And quit hanging around those kinds of people, those unbelievers who are doing you harm. And so Paul concludes with all of these amazing promises that God has given us. In light of the promises of God's presence among us, we should be a holy kind of people, just like Paul is. Because remember, his conduct is holy and sincere in everything that he does. So he just spends like seven chapters defending this ministry to the world and especially to the Corinthians. And then He's going to resume these travel tales. So chapter 7, verse 2, this is where we're going to begin. Paul says, make room for us in your hearts. Again, just repeating what he said before. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. Like everything that we've done for you has been for your good. 
And I don't say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Like we are with you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Like we belong to you. And I have spoken to you with great frankness. Like I penned you a hard letter. I unleashed a verbal cannon upon you. But guys, I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. And here's why. Here's why I'm so happy. It's because when we came into Macedonia, we didn't have any rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort that you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So remember, Paul, he, he sent these harsh words to them via letter, and then he's just torn up in the inside, and he's just anxiously waiting for a word to come back. And then finally, Titus shows up. Titus is okay. Whew. Big sigh of relief for Paul. Titus realizes the Corinthians weren't mean to Titus. They received him well. Oh, and Paul's day just got better. And then Titus tells Paul that the Corinthians reaffirmed their love for him. They have, they have relationally come back to Paul. They listened to his words. And at this point, Paul is just elated. He's just overflowing with joy. And so he sits down and he, he's writing out this letter. And he, and he tells them, like, re- remember why I did this. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, like I hurt you, I hurt you pretty bad by it. I don't regret it. Though, I I mean, I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. And now I'm happy. Not because you are made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed by us in any way. We hurt you, but we didn't injure you. Like we... We did something to get your attention. And you know what? It worked. <laughs> like, you changed. And, and Paul talks about, like, this repentance. It's a word that means t- to turn. It, it's not just feeling sorry. It is feeling sorry and so changing what you're doing. It, it involves action. And Paul says, look, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Like there, there's two types of pain. One is, one is godly and one is worldly. And godly sorrow is productive sorrow. It's the kind of pain that drives you to make a change in your life, that drives you closer to God and in relationship with other people. It leads you to salvation. It's the kind of pain that you don't regret later on. You're actually glad for it because of the effect that it happened in your life. And then there's worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow is pain for pain's sake. And it produces no change, and it just leaves you wallowing and miserable. So if it's helpful, I, I kind of think of these two different kinds of pain as the difference between a contraction and a menstrual cramp for you ladies out there. My wife, when we got married, really struggled with painful cramps. And I know because as she was giving birth to our first child, she made it past eight centimeters before her cramps before her contractions were more painful than her cramps had been. <laughs> like, no joke, they were rough. But a contraction is pain that gives birth to a child, and a cramp is just pain that you've got to suffer through, and it seems like it's for no good reason. 
Godly sorrow leads to a change in our life. You see, um, I talked to an alcoholic one time, and the guy is totally drunk, and he's crying, and he's bawling his head out because he's so sorry for what he's done. But there was no change that came from that sorrow. Like he, he would cry, he would say he's sorry, but the moment he got sober, nothing, nothing ever changed. And it just will lead you to death, and it will lead you to misery and to more drinking. But godly sorrow brings repentance. And so Paul says, so see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, O Corinthians. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So they got the letter, and Paul kind of unloaded the verbal canon about the way that he had been treated last time he visited. And it was like the whole church kind of woke up and went, oh, oh no. It's like they weren't aware, and they, they got on board real fast. <laughs> they were like indignant, like we are going to take care of this problem right now. And when Paul hears it, he, he just, he is so happy. And so he says, like, even though I wrote, I wrote this letter to you, it wasn't on account of the one who did the wrong. It wasn't on account of the injured part, party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. And by all this, we're encouraged. Like the reason that Paul is unloading this canon upon them, it, it's not because he was wrong. It's not really for his sake. And it's not because of the offender. Like he's not about, he's not out there trying to get revenge. He's not trying to get vindication from this person. His concern, as always, is the health of the church. He wants to know like how, like this affects all of you. He said back in chapter two, he says, what they did, it it wasn't really against me so much as it was against all of you. Like if you tear out the foundation of me being a genuine apostle, then the whole validity of the church is in danger. And so Paul's like, I'm not writing for my sake. I'm not writing for his sake. I need you guys to know how much you love us. Like, we love you. We're trying to make that very, very clear. You guys need to love us back. So kind of the image that comes to my mind is if you guys have ever seen in a grocery store a child pitching a fit to their parents, the parents is like, it's time to go. And they're like, no! And they want to stay and play or look at stuff. And finally... Finally, the parent gets the idea to just walk away. Like, all right then, bye, and off they go. And it doesn't always work, but sometimes I've seen it, the kid like wakes up to the reality that I'm about to be left by mom and dad. And all of a sudden, this thing that I cared so much about is not as important as those people who are leaving me behind. And so they, they drop what they're doing and they're like, come back. And they're crying and they go after mom and dad. And what, what happened was the child realized how much they actually loved their parents. And that's, that's kind of the image I get of what Paul's trying to do to the Corinthian church. And so Paul, Paul's elated in this. And he says, and in addition to our own encouragement, we're especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. See, I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything that we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. And I'm glad that I can have complete confidence in you. Like if you just go through and with one colored pencil, you highlight all of the overflowing joy and encouragement and comfort words, and then like another color pencil and you just all the sorrow words 
and all the bad ones, you'll just be filled. Like Paul takes such joy in the pain that he caused the Corinthian church. <laughs> in a good way, though. In a good way, because it changed, it changed their behavior. It actually brought life to them. See, when I, when I unloaded on Andrew back in China and he left, I was in, I was really having an emotionally hard time. Because I wasn't sure, like, God, was this of you? Was I, was I speaking hard truth and love? Or did I just lose it on him and hurt my brother? I, I had been studying the book of Job recently. And I'm like, am I like one of Job's friends who says good things in the wrong context and I'm just wounding somebody for no good reason? Or, and, and I just didn't know. And so I sat around the apartment waiting for about two hours for Andrew to come back. And when he came back, we had a, a really good conversation. And it seemed that the Holy Spirit was at work in his life. And what I said to him changed him. At, at least for the, the, the year that we were together. Like, he changed. Because it's like the truth finally got down deep enough. But I, I had to risk the relationship in order to in order to have him get to the point where we could experience joy on the other side of this issue. And that's what happened with Paul and the Corinthians. Like he, he put himself out there, he risked causing them pain, and they responded wonderfully. And he is so, so happy about it. And he's, he's happy because not only is he happy, Titus is happy. Titus now thinks such good things about the Corinthian church. His joy had been shared. And there's this great little detail that Titus reports that when, he, when Titus arrived carrying Paul's letter, before the seal on that thing was even cracked open, the Corinthians had received Titus with fear and with trembling. It means that God's Spirit was already at work in the hearts of the Corinthian church to, to receive the hard words that were about to be spoken. And, and Paul just has joy. So, you know, Paul takes joy in the pain he caused others, or rather we could say like Paul's Paul's overflowing joy comes in seeing the repentance that the Corinthian church had. And so what the Corinthian church is supposed to do right now is to open their hearts to Paul. Like, take pride in him. Love him back. Understand him fully. Defend his ministry because it has been as good as it could be. It's been great, and you guys need to affirm it. And so I've walked you through like seven chapters briefly of Paul's defense of himself and his ministry, and through it all, whether in, in suffering or in comfort, everything that Paul is experiencing is being done for the sake of the Corinthians, and they, they need to own it. But I think for us as family of grace, like what, what do we do with someone's travel plans and their defense of their ministry, and, and this kind of weird passage, which is really cool, but how do I tell you guys, guys, we should be taking joy in the pain that we cause one another, well, when it produces repentance. And, and I, think, I think the truth I, I just land on is that we, we should love one another enough to risk causing pain in order to bring people back to Jesus and to right relationship with God and others so that we can share our joy together. Jesus told his disciples on the night he was betrayed, guys, this is my new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Like this is going to be the hallmark 
you know, behavior for all Christians everywhere, that we would love one another like Jesus loved us. That Jesus' joy in his relationship with us would be our, our joy in our relationship with one another. And the problem is things get in the way. The problem is that issues arise between us. And you guys know, you know those people who slowly have grown apart because issues came up and rather than addressing them head on, they kind of swept it underneath the rug and it came up again and they swept it underneath the rug and pretty soon that little dust pile grew into a giant mountain that slowly separated two people and now they don't have relationship enough. Like what real love looks like is actually addressing the issue and getting, getting rid of it. We're going to tackle this thing head on together, and it might hurt, but it's worth the pain because being right with Jesus' followers is worth the risk, and it, and it can be really hard. So how do, we, how do we risk pain with one another? How do, we, how do we find the joy of genuine Christ relationships? And I have, I have three things for us. I think some of us need to have hard conversations. Some of us need to listen to hard conversations. And some of us need to repent. And these are just three behaviors I, I know from this passage that will bring us to the joy uh, of togetherness, the joy of genuine love among us. So having a hard conversation. I don't know who that person is. I don't know what that issue is. But I am someone who struggles on the end of the spectrum where I, I like to not have hard conversations with people I, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm worried that they'll leave. I'm worried that they're going to blow up on me, that they're going to fling stuff back in my face. Um, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Like, these are reasons that I avoid having a conversation. I mean, some of you guys are on the opposite end of the spectrum. You have no problem telling people exactly what you think. Your problem is speaking the truth in love. Um, God bless you. <laughs> right now, for those people over here on this side of the equation, Actually loving people sometimes requires us to speak up. Actually loving God and following Jesus at times requires us to speak up. That, you know, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. So if you can't do it because you love the person enough, have the conversation because you love Jesus enough. And I, I will say that as somebody who has been deeply struggling in this area for a long time and God has been slowly like, getting my attention with the fact that in order to obey him, this is what I need to do. But if you're going to have a conversation, ideally, sit down with the person in a safe context that's as private as you can make it and introduce it slowly and give space for listening and, you know, give it your best shot. But I've also been someone who has neglected talking to somebody for months because this ideal opportunity never presented itself. I tried to get together with them and it just couldn't happen. Sometimes you just need to open your mouth and say it. And it can be really hard. But for some of us, this is what needs to happen in order for us and for them to grow closer to Jesus and to experience that joy of relationship. Now, some of us need to be on the receiving end of these hard conversations. And that can be a problem. Sometimes it'll be things that you're not aware of. The Corinthians, it seems that when Titus brought the letter, they were indignant, they were alarmed, they were concerned, and they were like, we're going to take care of this immediately, and they got on it. And praise God for those opportunities where you can just affirm your love for somebody, and you're like, let's, let's take care of this right now, and we're going to change our behavior, we're going to repent, it'll be great. But other times, 
The conversations that we most need to hear are the ones that we've been hearing for a while and we don't think are really issues or we think that the problem's with the other person and we, we don't want to, we don't really want to listen to it. So this is my challenge to you for how to risk pain in order to love someone else is learn to listen. Learn to listen. I'm convinced that one of the absolute best ways that we can be Jesus to one another is by learning to listen. I mean, what a thing that God does for us. The guy knows our thoughts before they come out of our mouth, and yet he invites us to pray to him. He gives us time and he gives us space to talk to him. He is the God who sees me. He is the God who hears me me. And even when we look at Jesus, we look at someone who left the glory he had with the Father and humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death that he might share our experience with us. So learning to indwell and incarnate in someone else's world is, is a godly expression of love. So here's my tip. If you're having a hard time listening, this is something that I do. Um, because sometimes I'm afraid that like, oh, I need to respond with this point, And if I keep listening to you, I'm going to forget it. And it's really important. So maybe just like call a pause in the, re- in the conversation, grab a, a pen and paper or a computer and quickly write down your thoughts and write down your responses that you're just dying to rebut the person who's talking to you. And once you get it down on paper and it's secure and it's safe and you're not going to forget it, close it up and say, I'm going to listen to you now until I understand you. And once we get there, then I've got some stuff I want to share with you back. And you can just practice active listening. You can just respond to them and question them and keep paraphrasing until they feel understood. And then you can have a conversation. If you want more about listening, there's a bunch of great resources out there. I'm not a professional counselor and I don't pretend to be one. But learning to listen is an important Christ-like activity that we can do to love one another. And sometimes we need to because people see things in our lives that we are ignoring or we're not aware of or we don't, think is a big, we don't think of as a very big deal, but it's killing our relationships. So some of us need to have a hard conversation. Some of us need to learn to listen to a hard conversation. And if something is brought up that's hurting our relationships, we might need to repent. And let me just make the repenting is not the same as saying you're sorry. Saying you're sorry is part of it, but repentance actually involves changed behavior. <laughs> so, something needs to be done, either in your words or your actions or your thoughts or your emotions. Like a change needs to come about because worldly sorrow just leads to regret and nothing gets done with it and nothing's been accomplished other than that you have been hurt or you've hurt somebody else. Godly sorrow actually produces a change. And so a thought on this. If you happen to be close friends or married to somebody who is very analytical and you are very emotional, you might share something with them hoping to get a certain amount of feelings back from them. You, you, want, you want to see the proper emotions be ex- reflected back and they don't. And before you say that they haven't repented, maybe stop and just watch their behavior. Do they, are they doing things differently? Because sometimes our actions and our emotions are not quite in sync. So, again, just thoughts for how to help us get along. Like, how do we risk, risk the pain together? How do we, you know, feel the burn of 
productive pain that's going to grow us and grow others closer to Jesus Christ. Hard conversations, learning to listen, learning what actual repentance is, like we, we've got to change. But all of those three things we can do in order to have joy in one another. Because you read Paul. Paul thinks that these Jesus followers are just his pride and joy. He says, on the day of judgment, when I have to answer to God for everything that I have done in this body, I am going to boast about you. You guys give me such delight, such joy. My, my prayer is that we as a family can have that kind of delight, the, the delight of the psalmist that says, as for the saints who are in all the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The, the joy of Christ when he looks at his bride and he says, I have loved them and I will give my life for them. Like our relationships, especially as Jesus followers, are the be- one of the best things that God has for us. And sometimes we just got to deal with some ick before we can experience joy on the other side. Before we can experience joy on the other side. And so let me pray for us. Guys, Heavenly Father, I just thank you. God, I thank you that you have loved us enough to deal with our ick, with our sin. Lord, with the things that have separated us from you. I thank you that you are not only the God who sees us, who knows us in our our pain and our weakness, but you are the God who understands us because you came and lived life with us um, through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for one who has borne our our pain, our sorrow, our shame, for one who who has paid our debts that we could not pay in order that we might be right with you. And Lord, if we're right with you, then we can be right with one another. Because God, you have forgiven us greatly. So help us to forgive one another in the lesser things. Lord, give us joy together. Give us such deep and abiding love for one another that the world just might know that we are Jesus people because of the way that we love one another. But God, there's things that gets in the way. Arguments and hurt feelings. Lord, we're honestly, each of us, we're a mess Uh, We are more broken than we realize, and we're far more broken than our neighbor realizes. Um, So, Lord, when when sin gets in the way, I pray that you would give us courage to speak hard truths, to deal with issues, to risk being hurt, and to risk hurting people in order to be right with them. Father, help us to to have a hard conversation. Lord, help those people who are going to go and have a hard conversation, um, and they might do it right, and they might do it wrong. And help those people who are going to hear a hard conversation because, Lord, it might be done right and it might be done wrong. Um, But through it all, Lord, I pray that the motivation of our hearts would be love, that we would learn to have enlarged hearts, that we would care about those people who want to see us walk with Jesus together. And, Lord, in, in all things, give us your joy in your people. Give us your delight in seeing people repent and turn back to you. And help us to live in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Because, God, it takes the power uh, that raised Jesus from the dead to help us live together in unity. And I pray that that power would be among us. Thank you. Thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.